Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to The Bar. The Bar on Healthcare is a podcast produced by the Aon Health Solutions Group, focusing on developments in federal and state health and welfare law and their impact on employer group healthcare plans. I'm J.D. Puro of the Aon Legal Consulting Group. And I'm Carrie Willis, also of the Aon Legal Consulting Group. The Bar on Healthcare is available on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Simply search for The Bar on Healthcare, subscribe, tell your friends, leave a review, good, bad, and different. We read them all, though, to be quite honest, we're kind of sort of partial to the good ones. But again, we appreciate every review. We appreciate every listener. We're glad you're here. And The Bar is open. And Carrie, in the words of the great Admiral Stockdale, what am I doing here? Why am I here? Less than a week after last week's podcast. Well, under the heading of Timing is Everything, after we recorded last week's podcast on Monday, there were several developments that happened throughout the week. So we wanted to make sure we could come and tell everyone what's been going on over the past few days. And one of the interesting developments was a court decision on the Association Health Plans case. J.D., what can you tell us about that? Association Health Plans, boy, that's, that's certainly a mouthful. We had a United States District Court in the case of New York State versus U.S. Department of Labor, strike down the DOL's final rules on association health plans. Now, what are association health plans? These were the final regulations that were issued last year by the Trump administration that permitted small employers and individuals to band together to form association health plans, which would then qualify for treatment as large employer group health plans. So you get all these small employers together, they band together, they form a large employer group health plan, Uh, They are treated as large employer group health plans under ERISA and also, most importantly, under the Affordable Care Act. Now, these were one of three sets of regulations proposed last year by various government agencies pursuant to an executive order signed by the president in 2017. These were intended to give more choices to uh, individuals and also to small employers. And the district court, however, held that these rules were, and I'm quoting here, unreasonable interpretations of ERISA that attempted to end-run the requirements of the ACA by ignoring both the language and purpose of ERISA and the ACA. Now, what do these rules do? Well, they were finalized in 2018, so this was striking down a final rule, and they, they relaxed the rules that an association had to qualify in order to be treated as a bona fide association that could set up these association health plans. If you were treated as a bona fide association, were you then treated as a large employer group health plan, which gave you many advantages. You could be exempt from a lot of rules under ERISA, a lot of rules under the ACA. All you had to do to be a bona fide association under these final rules were to form with a primary purpose to offer health insurance, as long as you had at least one other substantial business purpose. Uh, the rules didn't define those. They said you had to be related by either trade or by geography. This was referred to as the commonality of interest rule. You also were able to cover work working owners, and the self-employed. So the district court looked at all these rules, and they held that the AHP rule was an unreasonable interpretation of ERISA's definition of employer. They said that the final rule stretched that definition beyond, according to the court, beyond what the statute can bear. Uh, So it struck down the definition of a bona fide association because it failed to set meaningful limits on an association's character and activities, held that the commonality of interest rule allowed unrelated employers in multiple unrelated industries to associate, according to the court, despite the fact that these interests of these employers may be very different or even conflicting. It said that the geography test created no meaningful limit on these associations, and it said with respect to the working owner rule, the contention that two working owners without employees neither of whom was in ERISA's scope alone, could associate with one another and thereby come within the statute's reach. And the court said, and I'm quoting here, 
that that result is absurd. They said that when you count employees employed by two self-employed persons who don't have employees, you come up with zero. However, according to the court, the DOL was able to transform two individuals, neither of whom works for the other, into a total of three employers and two employees. And that, that certainly you know, qualified under them, un, under these rules. But the court said that interpretation strained the ERISA definition of employee, which constituted one individual employed by another. So pretty devastating repudiation of the DOL by Judge John Bates, who, by the way, just a little bit of legal trivia here, and you'll recall this from, from the couple of some of the work we've done together. Judge Bates is the judge who struck down the EEOC's rules on incentives the one that said that uh, the ADA and Gina's incentives, that they didn't issue a reasonable interpretation or reasonable rationale of why they came up with 30%. Same judge involved here. So he's pretty much a, a stickler for reasonable interpretations of the statute. He employed the Chevron decision, which you and I remember from law school. Although actually, now that I think of it, though, wasn't Chevron... Chevron was decided after me, I think, even after I went to law school. So that was before probably me. It was before you. Yeah. So. So, J.D., what does this decision mean for uh, small employers and self-employed or working owners? Well, uh, actually, it's interesting because now I'm having flashbacks to that EEOC case with the with the wellness incentives where you had, you had two groups of employers. You have two groups of employers. One group of employers are the ones that are contemplating setting up an association health plan. And I think with respect to those employers... This is pretty much going to have a chilling effect on them. What the court did was they remanded the rules back to the Department of Labor and said, you know, basically look at this again in the context of the decision I just made. But his decision really guts the heart of the rule. There's one provision that's still left standing, the non-discrimination provision. But I don't think that's going to really help anybody that's, that's trying to set up an AHP. So if you're an employer that's thinking about this, I think you have to, you know, think long and hard about relying on these rules or maybe hoping the DOL is going to get them overturned once uh, once it gets to a, a circuit court. We don't know what the DOL is going to do. They haven't issued a decision on whether or not they're going to appeal. I think with respect to employers that have already formed these plans, the DOL has put out a set of FAQs. The only real news from that is that what they're saying is continue to pay claims and continue to keep paying medical benefits until we figure this out. So you've got that set of uh, employers. Now, you have the prior rules for becoming an association health plan, which I have to say are a lot less favorable to forming association health plans, a lot more restrictive uh, than this current set of rules. That's why the DOL issued these. That's why the president put out the executive order. Uh, So you could certainly form an AHP based on those old rules. But a lot of employers were looking at this and saying, you know, this gave us a lot more flexibility for setting up these AHPs. And now really, I think, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're looking to set these up, I think you, there's, there's really only one route to go, and that's the prior set of regulations. But again, we're going to find out what the DOL is going to do in the next, uh, based on our luck, we could find out this afternoon after we do this podcast. That, we'll have a, know, bonus, you know, bonus. You know, a bonus bonus. Bonus, bonus podcast, and we'll have to be doing this tonight. But, you know, I, I think that the, the district court remanding it back, this is going to be this is going to be out there. I think this this issue is going to be with us for a while. You also have, you know, the fact that it's now one third of those regulations under that executive order that have been struck down. You have the short term limited duration policy rules, which are also under attack in the court. The HRA rules, which I think those are those are still proposed, right? Those are, I mean, proposed, those, are right. those are not final. But those also have the same question of interpreting the definition of, you know, certainly definitions under the statute. So I think that, you know, there's there are going to be more challenges with respect to these rules out there. Uh, there doesn't certainly doesn't seem to be any let up in that. And okay. you had said that there was a, another employer that, that had a re- reaction to these rules? 
Right. So there's one employer group that's been reported in the media that has said in the interim they are will not continue to sell these types of policies, at least to working owners or the self-employed. Based on the court's decision, they don't feel comfortable that these are, are policies or plans that they can sell to those individuals. So I think that goes to your point that we just don't know what exactly is going to happen in the short term. But while we've been in the courts, uh, there's also been some action in the Congress as well. Speaker Pelosi took, and again, our timing was just, we hinted at this on on last week's podcast, uh, but Speaker Pelosi did introduce a bill, which is a title that, you know, I mean, for all the policies and back and forth and whatever. So I just love the title of this bill. I mean, it's back in 2010, they signed the Affordable Care Act. Speaker Pelosi introduced the More Affordable Care Act of, of 2019. So, Carrie, can you tell us about the More Affordable Care Act? Sure. So the bill that Speaker Pelosi introduced in the House was designed to address some of the gaps that the Democrats have seen in the Affordable Care Act. So, for example, there's been some concern that the 400 percent income limitation in order to be able to get a subsidy in the exchange does not really help people who may need assistance but make too much under the current provision. So this legislation uh, implemented by the speaker, introduced by the speaker, would lift that 400 percent cap for federal assistance. It would also reverse what what we've referred to in the past as the Brady Bunch rule. And I love that rule. That's that's a great rule. Yes. And the the quick, quick. Brady Bunch rule, you, under the Affordable Care Act, Mr. Brady has to be offered affordable employee-only coverage. Carol Brady does not have to be offered coverage at all. And you have to offer coverage to the six Brady kids, Greg, Peter, Bobby, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. And uh, yeah, we'll tell you, if those of you who are listening, we'll tell you who the, who the, uh, the other two Brady sisters are at, at, the, at the end of the podcast. But this now changes that rule, right? It, it does. So the concern with that rule was the affordability for being able to get a subsidy on the exchange because you could only get a subsidy if your coverage from your employer was not affordable was based on the cost of coverage only for Mike in the Brady Bunch. Only for sample. Mike Brady, not for Alan Brady, which is what a mistake I made during one healthcare forum referring to him as Alan Brady. And that just shows you how old I am. I was going back to the Dick Van Dyke show. But but go ahead. <laughs> yes. So that eligibility for a subsidy was based on what Mike would have to pay for coverage from his employer. It was not based on what he would have to pay for himself and the six kids under his employer's plan. This rule would or this provision would change that rule. So if the cost of family coverage was not affordable under the employer's plan, then the family would be eligible for a subsidy in the exchange. So that was something that had been seen as a gap with respect to how the ACA works today. This legislation would also prohibit the sale of short-term limited duration policies that don't provide coverage for essential health benefits or prescription drugs or that exclude pre-existing medical conditions. So that was something you were mentioning a minute ago, J.D., one of the three tenets of the president's executive order and the regulations that would allow the sale of short-term limited duration policies. Those would be prohibited under this legislation introduced in the House. It would also reinstate funding for things like open enrollment outreach education, and for navigators to help people sign up for coverage in the exchanges. One thing this legislation does not do, which I think was sort of interesting, is it did not reinstate the cost-sharing reduction subsidies, which, again, listeners That to was the part bar, of the, the Alexander and Murray bill from a couple of years ago where they were reinsta- partnering together, but right. that never went anywhere. Right. That bill never went anywhere, but 
The basis for all of this is the fact that the Trump administration stopped paying the cost-sharing reduction subsidies to the insurance carriers a couple of years ago based on the fact that the money had never been specifically appropriated by Congress. Um, And there was a whole court case about whether then Congress could fund them or not fund them. And the Trump administration decided to stop paying them. So you're right, J.D., some of the versions of the Republican bills that had been introduced last year, even in some cases bipartisan bills, would have reinstated the cost-sharing reduction subsidies. But this bill by the Democrats does not. And and that might be because the insurers have engaged in, in the practice called silver loading, which perfectly perfectly legal, basically putting all their increases into the silver plan, which is where the subsidies are geared towards. Those always have to be those plans always have to be affordable, and therefore you know they they were able to get the increases through, and and people were not didn't have to pay too much more. Right. Uh, as a result. Right. The carriers were getting their money one way or the other, right? If they weren't mm. getting them through the cost-sharing reduction subsidy payments from the federal government, then they would get them through increased premiums for which the government had to increase subsidies for people electing those plans. So, so, so the, that may be why it's no longer considered the hot issue it was a year or so that, ago. That is true. And, uh, but at least the more, more Affordable Care Act would get a, a, an affordable family coverage for Greg, Peter, Bobby, Marsha, Jan, and Cindy. Uh, and I remember at one healthcare forum when I when I asked who you know who the other two Brady sisters are, one person replied Ginger and Marianne, which you know just uh, I I didn't know where that came from. From well, I knew where it came from, but I was just wondering what you know. But did they see a boat in the living room or something like that when they were watching the show? But do you know who Mike's boss was? Mike's boss. You've told you've told you go ahead. But I I remember this answer. Go ahead. Mr. Phillips. Mr. Phillips. And he was an, archi- he, uh, he was an architect he was. Uh, as, as well. But we digress. So, but also we've, in addition to uh, everything else that, uh, that's going on, we also had the Trump administration kind of change its position on the, the Affordable Care Act, the one, the one before the more Affordable Care Act that was back in, in 2012. What did, what did the Trump administration do last week? Right. So as listeners to the bar might recall from a couple of episodes ago, there's a federal district court in Texas that had found that the ACA was unconstitutional. And the basis for this was an argument that 20 state attorneys general had made claiming that because the 2017 tax bill repealed the individual mandate penalty, that the ACA was no longer constitutional. And that's because back in 2012, when the Supreme Court held that the ACA was constitutional, it based that decision on the fact that the individual mandate was a tax and not a penalty. But now that the individual mandate is no longer part of the ACA, these 20 Republican state attorneys general had claimed that the ACA was no longer constitutional. Now, the Trump administration's initial position was not to completely agree with these 20 state attorneys general. The Trump administration's original position was only part of the ACA was tied to the, to the individual mandate. Therefore, only those pieces related to that, things like guaranteed availability, guaranteed renewability, the pre-existing condition exclusion prohibition. The community rating rule. The community rating rule. Just those provisions should fall, not the entire ACA, meaning that things like the Medicaid expansion provisions, the subsidy to buy coverage on the exchanges, all should remain intact. And and let's be clear about this. This was, in fact, the position of the dissent back in 2012. They wouldn't have overturned all of the Affordable Care Act, but but basically those provisions that they felt were wound up in the the guaranteed issue, community rating, pre-existing condition, exclusion part, those would come out. Right. So just in this past week, the 
uh, Trump administration, the Department of Justice, sent a letter to the appellate court changing their position, saying that they now do agree that the entire ACA should fall because of the repeal of the individual mandate penalty. So that would not only include the provisions we just talked about, that would also include the employer mandate, the employer shared responsibility. The age 26 rule. The age 26 rule. Yes. Okay. None of that. I mean, look, there's no doubt em- em- employers would, would feel a lot better if they didn't have to file all those 1095 C's and, and, and B's and other letters in the alphabet. You know, but the, the fact of the matter is, even back in 2012 with NFIB versus Sibelius, the dissenters never took the position that the rest of those provisions had to fall. They just there's there's no place in in I think it was Scalia who was writing the dissent or maybe it was Kennedy. I can't recall right now. One of them wrote the dissent. There was nothing in there about those provisions falling. So it will be interesting. I haven't had a chance to read these briefs, but it'll be interesting to see how they can take the view that, you know, the individual mandate means that it's inseverable and the rest of the act has to fall. Yeah, and it's interesting you talk about the briefs because there was some reports in the press that the way the Trump administration went about this was a little bit unique. So instead of filing a brief about this position, they simply wrote a letter to the clerk of the court. They did not file a brief with the judge. And Strong letter to follow. A strong letter to follow. And that usually when the, an administration does not defend a law that's been passed by Congress, that they need to send a letter to that effect to Congress, and a letter was not sent when they changed this position. Now, the counterargument is, well, they had said previously they weren't defending part of it, so there was no necessity for a new letter to Congress. But these are sort of the, the context in which all of this is happening. And of course, you know, wrapped around that is the context of the presidential elections in 2020 and what the issue of health care will mean in that election. And the Republicans are, are also taking a look at that and saying, you know, we'll, we'll fight that battle after, after the 2020 election because there was a third development last week, or maybe it's a fourth development. I've lost count now uh, on this podcast, but we had another development in the Republican position uh, on, on health care reform. Right. So immediately after the Department of Justice's change in position in this ACA case, the Trump administration, President Trump had come out saying that the Republicans would have a new proposal on repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act and they would become the party on health care. And then there were some developments with the leadership. J.D., you want to Yes. About as the Trump administration said, we're going to develop a position on health care and it's going to produce great health care. And Senator McConnell then said, basically said to the Trump administration, we'll be interested to see what you come up with because we're, we're not going back to this again. And the president then announced in another Twitter posting, Twitter, I'm not sure with a tweet, I guess. Tweet, tweet, is, tweet is the word. The Twitter basic, posting. Twitter posting. Yeah, that's no, not. It's a Facebook posting and a tweet. Okay. But the president announced that they would punt all of this to 2021. I think I think for, for a couple of reasons. First of all, nobody in the Senate uh, wants to touch this again. They had the repeal and replace, which was a, a failure in 2017. They really have no bill right now that has a consensus. They have a lot of different plans. There are a lot of plans out there in, in the Republican Party, a lot of plans uh, among think tanks. Uh, but there's no one plan that gets, gets a majority in the House of Representatives, even when it was Republican, and that gets a majority uh, in, in the Senate as well. They're there is, I think, the last one that they had was the Graham-Cassidy bill, which uh, and 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 Senator Cassidy uh, was was on on TV last night saying, you know, that that he was saying they really have to develop a position. Uh, so actually, he's been one of the foremost uh, advocates of of the Republican Party having a position on this. But the last idea, the Graham-Cassidy bill, was to block grant all the money under the Affordable Care Act, send it back to the states. 
uh, and have them deal with deal with the issues. And that'd be a, a rather massive change because you know when you look at you know, the whole debate, the way it went on. Medicaid expansion was was probably one of the main reasons why this all fell apart back in back in 2017, uh, that states had expanded care, that people had relied on it uh, and that they had the money from the federal government. And so it was just too too massive a shift in, in that period of time. So the Republicans are, are, are looking at, at, at doing this again, uh, maybe after after the 2020 election. Again, I think the president said, uh, assuming uh, that they have control of the House of Representatives, which Again, it's probably just a uh, probably something something for another podcast uh, if we were ever even going to go there. But with that last call, with a a shout out to the Purdue uh, Boilermakers for giving it a, a hell of a run uh, until that that heartbreaking uh, buzzer beater that sent it into overtime. But we're just gonna have a last call on something completely different because three weeks from tomorrow, Avengers Endgame comes out. And and Carrie, what's what's your game plan for preparing for uh, for the the end of the Marvel Cinematic Universe yeah, as we know it? We're very excited about this in my house. We're getting ready by watching all of the previous Marvel movies in chronological order. The way the MCU sets them out yeah you know, and so you you saw captain marvel already and and you're you're going with with it from from the beginning after that yes so we've watched the iron man movies we saw avengers i think next on our list is captain america winter soldier so we'll go from there up until uh, uh the avengers endgame so we're excited how yeah. about you jd and uh yeah we're we're going to be doing the same thing in my house and with, with the exception of my wife who said you know just go ahead i'll treat that the same way i treat i treat your star trek fixation and go do something else but uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna take a look at, at everything in the order of the MCU. Uh, we've got our tickets for Thursday, April twenty fifth, uh, at, at an IMAX, and uh, and yes, looking forward to uh, to how they're gonna resolve it, uh, and uh, with a with a snap of our fingers. So. That's our report for today. Assuming nothing else happens, you know, after we after we sign off on this podcast, which which always might be the case. But for all of us here at Aon, I'm JD Pirro. And I'm Carrie Willis. Thanking you for your time this time, and until next time, the bar is closed. <laughs> <laughs>